0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bennett Kerber, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to John Bloom, who, along with Matthew Bentley, co-authored the new book, The Imperial Gridiron, Manhood, Civilization and Football at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. John Bloom, uh, welcome to the show, and I want to congratulate you on the book's recent prize, the North American Society for Sports History Monograph Award, uh, deservedly so, if I do say so myself. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. It was an honor
1: to receive that, and, and uh, I, I understand you won an award with North American Society for Sports History, too, so congratulations to you as well.
0: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, um, great organization. If, if, if the listeners ever want to check out NASH, uh, definitely produce some good material. Um, but John, I was wondering if you could, uh, you know, begin the interview by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay. Well, um, uh, I initially got interested in um, studying sports uh, as a graduate student um, when in American studies. So I, I got my PhD in American studies from the University of Minnesota um, way back in 1991. That's when I uh, graduated from there. And um, at that time, really, there weren't a lot of people interested in sports history. I think there are a lot more. I'm getting into the field now, Um, but uh, I was very interested, especially in more representations of sports and how sports sort of uh, fit into society. Um, And eventually I ended up getting a job I now teach in a history department at Shippensburg University uh, of Pennsylvania, which is in uh, one of the state university uh, system universities in Pennsylvania um, uh, and South Central. Uh, Pennsylvania. And I've been teaching there I, coming up in my 20th year uh, teaching there. So um, and I've uh, written another book on sports at uh, Indian boarding schools. And I'll explain the whole Indian boarding school um, history a little bit in a moment um, back in 2000. And that was more comprehensive. It looked a little bit um, beyond Carlisle and look at other schools and sports beyond football as well. Um, and then, uh, sort of, the topic has kept coming back to me. I sort of was going to be moving on to other things, but I, uh, I can't seem to shake it. So, um, so this is the latest part.
0: Well, I'm glad you didn't quite shake it because this this was an excellent project. I'm glad it, I'm glad i made it out. But um, as the listeners uh, noticed during the introduction, um, you will notice that John is the co-author of this book along with Matthew Bentley, who unfortunately passed away in 2018, and. John, um, since you know Matthew well, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your co-author, Matthew, the person, the scholar, and how he came um, to write this project in particular. Um, Matthew
1: is a remarkable uh, young man. He had been getting... he's actually w- is from England, or was from England, um, and uh, he was getting his PhD in American Studies at the University of East Anglia, which is in Norwich, England. Um, and we had... Lived there for a while. It's a long, complicated series of events, but he, he got connected up with me. And even though I taught at Chippensburg University, um, I served as a reader on his dissertation committee um, when he wrote this. And he finished that in the spring of 2010. Um, so he had come to Carlisle to do research. Um, in t- 2008, we first met in person at that time, and had been corresponding over email ever since then. And then I came to England to serve in his um, his oral defense as well of the dissertation. Um, and you know, it, it's really a remarkable thing because th- there aren't a lot of people in England. Well, th- American football is is has a sort of niche popularity in England, but. Um, it, it's interesting cause he's not necessarily somebody who was very much of an American football fan initially, but he started to become more of one. They broadcast replays of NFL games over there. Um, so I think he started to get into, into football that way. And, um, and then came over here and had a really uh, amazing understanding of the game. I think it's a lot easier for Americans to go over to Europe and understand European football or, you know, what everybody else in the world calls football. Um, than the other way around. Cause you know, our version of football has a lot of rules to it and they can get really confusing. And, you know, people from England will, will express tremendous frustration over that. And, but he seemed to understand it really well and really understood the history of the game. I learned a tremendous amount about the history of football by, you know, reading his dissertation initially. So, um, uh, And sadly, he um, uh, was afflicted with type one diabetes. And after a trip overseas from um, he went into Europe for a concert, I think, and then to come back and his medications weren't right um, and he didn't realize it and uh, died in his sleep. And I think he was only 31 years old when he died or 32 years old. Um, And at that point, his parents, he had a contract for his dissertation to get published into a book um, and it needed a lot of revisions. So um, uh, University of Nebraska Press wasn't willing to just publish it. They needed somebody to um, kind of revise it completely. And um, they asked me to come in and do that. And um, uh, and his parents asked me to do that, too, because they wanted to see. This is one last legacy of, uh, of his work and his life. Um, and uh, I agreed to do that. So um, one of the sad things about Matthew, I should say, is that his career, academic career, academic careers, as um, Bennett can tell you, are are very, very um, difficult to get. And it's really hard to get a a job. And this is true in England as well. And he had just gotten a really good job and um, was really kind of heading up. And um, that's when he passed away. So uh, I feel really honored being able to, um, you know, carry on his dissertation this way. And uh, to have contributed to the book
0: yeah and i'm glad you said i i, I think a, a legacy uh to both his life and his work um both which sound very impressive and i can can, can attest to his his scholarship after reading the book um yeah he was so an amazing researcher yeah 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 very very in-depth research i was looking through the citations and, and he did a lot of work um to be able to uncover some of these some some that have been told some that had not yet been told so um i'm glad you you agreed um and and that this book was able to make it to press both uh, for the product it it provided to the field, but then also the kind of legacy it it left um, for for Matthew's work to be able to be be read by the masses. Yes, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so a a bit more about the book. I was hoping um, you could tell the readers about a central figure, especially in the first half of of your Matthew's book, Richard Henry Pratt. Um, And specifically, what were his ideas about Indigenous Americans, masculinity, civilization, and assimilation, um, and and were these unique viewpoints at this time, kind of late nineteenth, early twentieth century?
1: Well, um, that that's a really good question, and um, to I wanted to first talk a little bit about Pratt, and then I'll get into really kind of the key um, insight that Matthew made, which is at the heart of the book. Um, so the um, first about Pratt, he was a um, uh, Midwesterner, he was a Civil War veteran, and he had been in charge of a group of actually African American soldiers on the frontier, known as the Buffalo Soldiers. They came, became nicknamed as the Buffalo Soldiers, and um, in the in the process of doing that, he ended up um, getting involved in the Indian Wars and taking a group of captives and bringing them back to San Antonio. I, I'm not, not San Antonio, Saint Augustine, Florida. Um, to the prison. Have you ever seen the castle that is on the beach in St. Augustine? That served as a prison for these war captives. And um, they were convicted of major crimes, which um, there was an act in the 19th century called the Major Crimes Act, and um, uh, that uh, meant that these were people who were truly convicts. And he um, got this idea that maybe they could be reformed in some way. And if they could be reformed, then maybe the whole problem of westward expansion could be solved because indigenous Americans could be just kind of enveloped into mainstream American culture. Um, And his idea was that, you know, people, and this is a pretty common idea at the time, and it would have been a progressive idea at the time, which was that indigenous Americans were... um, Genetically and, and biologically the same as everybody else, but that they had a culture that was clearly more primitive and inferior and that they had to be elevated up to what um, he believed to be a higher level of civilization, the apex of civilization, which would be European civilization. And of course, this is all a myth. If you've studied anything about world history, you know that actually northern and western Europeans were pretty late in the whole quote unquote, civilizing (laughs) system, but, you know, uh, or, you know, complex societies, whatever you want to call it, they were pretty late. Um, But this was a really common belief, you know, um, especially during the era when um, Europeans and Americans were colonizing, um, you know, non-white people around the world, Um, you know, people in the Philippines in terms of the Americas um, and, and so forth. And so, uh, his idea was kind of consistent with those those colonial ideas of um, you know progressive colonial ideas of including people um, that you colonize and, and assimilating them into the um, into the western civilization which, which he believed to be elevating them up um, in, in his his idea. Um, so uh, he ended up doing this in, in Saint. Augustine as almost like a demonstration project and then, Um, convinced the federal government to give him an outpost somewhere. Eventually, he first took them to Hampton uh, Institute, which was, you know, that's still Hampton University today. So it's a um, HBCU. So that was was for African-Americans who were recently emancipated from slavery, uh, African-American men. And then he um, uh, had sort of uh, a contentious relationship with um, General Armstrong, who was the founder of that school. And he got the federal government to give him an army post, an abandoned army post in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and turn that into a boarding school. And that the idea behind that boarding school would be to create the curriculum to um, assimilate Indigenous Americans into mainstream Anglo-Protestant American culture. Um, so that was sort of the the idea behind that. Um, now, the, the um, insight that kind of Matthew makes is really unique and um, that I had, had kind of taken for granted um, when I did my first work on, on uh, sports in Indian boarding schools it has to do with what you just talked about, masculinity. Um, uh, I, a lot of us, when we talk about masculinity today, I think we just sort of think about that as being the same as male identity. Um, but uh, what Matthew did is he actually applied the research of Gail Betterman, um, who wrote a great book called Manliness and Civilization, um, that came out in the 1990s. And in that book, she um, pointed out that the term masculinity and the idea of masculinity really was seen as separate as a component maybe of um, manhood. And the other component was manliness. And in the Victorian era, era especially, men were really ex- ex- sort of expected, elite men, men who would be leaders, were expected to really downplay their masculinity. Um, that was considered to be the physical traits of um, a male identity. Um, Everything from, uh, you know, male sexual desire to male strength to, you know, um, combativeness, all of these sorts of things. And those things were associated with, you know, working classes, um, with, um, uh, you know, um, people who were uh, laborers, people who were... Uh, colonize and so forth. So that was really segmented with that group and, and seemed to be a sign of primitive uh, primitive identity. Um, and, and in a way, when you can kind of think about this, you could sort of see pretty clearly that Proud would have stereotyped um, uh, or or you know, understood indigenous men as being overly masculine. And that his job in these Indian boarding schools was to kind of, um, temper that down um, and make that, you know, less um, prominent among them. And that would be go hand in hand with the whole civilizing process. And in fact, you know, you see that going on elsewhere in the world, not just with the United States colonizing other nations, but also with Great Britain doing it and, and other European nations doing that. Um, this idea that, you know, the people that they are um, conquering in Africa or in Asia or in Southeast Asia and so forth, are all need to be kind of um, civilized. And that part of that is in terms of the men, um, the men are often portrayed as being hyper masculine, overly masculine. That needs to be tempered in some kind of way. Um, so that, that's really kind of a central component of the um, project of the Carlisle Indian School. Um, So we'll get at why football is sort of a component of that in a moment, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, you you a perfect transition because I was going to, you know, and our listeners know this as well. If you think about football, um, you would think that it's kind of counterproductive in a way, right? To Pratt's views on manliness and civilization that's focused on self-restraint and discipline. Um, But as you and Matthew point out, Pratt made the sport align with his beliefs. Um, so how was he able to compromise his vision on civilized manliness, masculinity um, with football's violent nature?
1: OK, so that's a really good question. And um, what you end up discovering is that actually the violent character of football fits in perfectly with what Pratt wanted to do. But um, it's it, it takes a little while to get there. So first, um, when we think about the history of college football, and that's something you you know a great deal about, the earliest history of college football, it was played among uh, you know, men at very, very elite, um, very white colleges. And what they were trying to do at that time, so as we get to the, you know, leaving the Victorian era, sort of the Civil War and post-Civil War era, there's much more of this emphasis on... Um, on bringing out masculinity in men, um, not repressing that masculinity. And uh, there are a lot of different reasons for this, but one that's often explicitly stated is that you know we have emancipated African-Americans in this country, that white men may need to be strong enough to put down, um, that the newly sort of um, middle-class consumer culture that's emerging in the late 19th century is making white men, affluent white men, too soft. And that um, they're also going to need to go overseas and colonize these people in places like, you know, uh, the South Pacific and, and Africa and, and Asia. And we need to be tougher than these, you know, overly masculine people. And you see, you know, a lot of different expressions. At the end of the book, I, I always like um, uh, Tommy Cannon in The Great Gatsby. And he's actually quoting an, an actual book. Um, he says that man Goddard. Um, this fellow Goddard, and that's actually Northrop Stoddard, who wrote a book about exactly what I was talking about. Um, And uh, uh, you even have, you know, G. Stanley Hall is really the founder of American um, uh, psychotherapy, and he, from Clark University, and he basically says all of this. So it's, it's said over, you know, Teddy Roosevelt says it all these different people say, it doesn't this isn't like, I always interrupt myself when I'm speaking to a lot of crowds because you know, people say, is that critical race theory? It's like, no, it's really critical race fact. Like you just can read what these people said. That's what they said at the time. So you can develop your own theory about it, but um, that is really, you know, what people were saying. Um, and so uh, uh you know, um, thinking about this, as he said, it seems counterintuitive. This sport that was really developed to um, that became very popular because you had this group of young men that would wanted to prove that as white men, elite white men, they were not soft. That they wanted to bring out their masculinity. Why would you do that with a group of indigenous Americans who, you know, according to Pratt's plan, he wanted to suppress masculinity. So the way that that worked, it actually, he was very reluctant to allow football, actually, at the beginning. And the way he um, tells it in his um, book that he wrote, his memoir, Battlefield in Classroom, is um, he talks about that, and that actually is confirmed if you go back and look at his letters. He, he wrote letters to clergy and so forth and, and said very contradictory things about football, but he often was very ambivalent about the game. But what he said is that you know there, was this, they were, there were these students that are playing a football game against Dickinson College, and I think it was 1892. And um, a student came back with a badly broken leg, and he said, okay, that's it, I'm banning football. We can't have football on campus anymore. And the students came to him, he said, in protest. And they said, you know, we really want to do this. This is something that we've really um, has made our lives better here. We really think, you know, we, we would benefit from it. So he said, "Okay, I have two conditions. One of the conditions is that you never, when you're out in the football field, ever hit back at a player that's unfairly hitting you. So it's kind of like later on, you see Branch Ricky saying that to Jackie Robinson, right? Turn the other cheek. Don't ever respond to racist taunts. So he's saying the same thing to them. Um, and then the second is that they beat one of the best universities in football in the country in the next five years, um, which they never did. They didn't do that. They did beat the best university, some of the best universities, but it took them a little bit longer to do that. But um, in terms of the first, you know, um, uh condition that he had, the story he tells to illustrate that is a game against Yale in 1896. Um, And in that game, Carlisle and Yale, by the way, was the best team in the country. So um, as I know, you know, that, that, you know, it's hard to believe it now, but um, Yale was sort of the, you know, Alabama of its time period. So Walter Camp was the, I guess, uh, uh, the, Oh, saving you know, kind of coach, right? So um, so, uh, they were the best team in the country. And um, they're playing against Yale, and they're actually down by a touchdown. So that's it. And toward the end of the game, a Carlisle player um, uh, gets the ball and runs all the way for a touchdown to tie the game. Um, And it's a really dramatic moment in the game. But the referee called it back, and he said that the player's knee had touched the ground. Um, And everybody on the field and everybody in the crowd um, said that wasn't true. You know, the the ref was being booed and so forth. And Pratt tells a story, he says, but, you know, and the the team was so enraged, he started to walk off the field, and he said, that was an unjust call, but you can't walk off the field right now. You need to go back in there, play the rest of the game, and everybody from now on will know what gentleman you are. Um, and sure enough, they go back out in the game. They lose the game. And, um, and Pratt, as he tells it, um, succeeds in projecting this great public relations image for Carlisle and wins a lot of sympathy for the Carlisle Indian School. And in a way, that's true, because if you look at the press coverage after the game, um, there was a great deal of sympathy for Carlisle after that. So in, in a way, you know, um, it is kind of this PR victory. Now, Pratt, the way he tells it, doesn't tell the whole story. First of all, in, in no press account that I have ever looked at do I see any indication that Pratt ran down on the field and convinced the players to keep from running off. So um, that may, might have happened, but I don't see any evidence of it. So the second thing is that the referee who um, called the player down and made the unjust call was actually Carlisle's coach, who was a Yale grad. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, his, his name was wild Bill Hickok actually, but, uh, he, um, uh, at the time, uh, you did not have professional, um, referees yet in games. So each coach would referee the game and he, it was actually Carlisle's coach who made the bad call, um, and, you know, called it in favor of his, <laughs> of his, uh, um, uh, uh alma mater but it's a kind of interesting case because it shows the degree to which Pratt's vision was um, prominent that it was actually more important to lose the game um, uh, and show that you were gentlemen than to win the game. Um, and uh, and it just is an illustration of the different names it was more important for Yale the Yale people didn't care about you know, being good sportsmen. They wanted to show that they could win. Um, on Carlisle's side, though, it was much more important, at least according to Pratt's vision, to show that uh, they could behave in it as gentlemen and behave as civilized men in this incredibly violent game that had been
0: created. And, and you know, even back, well, it's probably true today that that oftentimes the best teams are those teams that do push the rules to the edge, right? That are com- right. constantly trying to skirt the rules to get that 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 leg up. And you would think that that approach, um, that kind of restraint, self-discipline, sportsmanship approach um, would be counterintuitive to the, his second point, right? The winning football and wanting them to be the best team in five years. Um, so, you know, how was he kind of hurting Carlisle's chances on the field? And has he ever tempted to, um, break free from his initial kind of sportsmanship approach, civilized approach to football in order to get that, that winning team. Um,
1: the, the biggest evidence that he was willing to kind of break um, from that a little bit was when he hired Pop Warner. Um, and, you know, by the time he hired Pop Warner, and I should know the date of this, I believe it was in 1898. Um, and uh, Warner coaches the team um, uh, until Uh, 1904. And in that time period, the team fortunes changed dramatically. And um, uh, Warner is somebody he could come from Cornell University, had been a star football player there. Um, Many of you who are listening may know the name Pop Warner from the kind of little league football that has been created. Um, And so he's somebody that kind of Um, You might think of this might have been a kind of American hero, kind of a heroic sort of football hero. Um, But uh, when you learn a little bit more about Pop Warner, he was very much the kind of guy that was willing to cut corners to win a game. Um, So, you know, one of the first things he noted is that, you know, Carlisle, um, the Indian boarding school that Pratt created was never really very well funded. And um, the diet that students ate was never very good. In fact, a lot of the diet that they ate was food that they raised themselves. Um, so the players he inherited were pretty scrawny, as he saw it. He said that they're they're not fit enough to be competitive football players. So he eventually gets them to um, have almost a separate training table and diet um, on their own so they could bulk up a little bit more. And play against these other teams, Um, so that's sort of you know above board a little bit maybe, but it's you know giving these football players special privileges that other students on the campus don't have. And uh, as time goes on, Warner continues in that direction, as we'll get to. But um, but you know in those early years, the, the willingness to hire somebody like Warner, who Pratt, I'm sure, after watching him coach for just a few years, would know. Uh, he is he's somebody himself who was um, uh, often kind of ignoring the rules of, of manliness and veering toward masculinity um, and uh, uh, probably not a great role model for his for the, the players. So uh, so that that is an indication that Pratt was willing to veer a little bit away from that.
0: Yeah, and we, we certainly will uh, talk a little bit more about Warner uh, later on. And, and again, like you said, I'm sure many people are familiar with the name, but not very familiar with the man himself. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I but you, there is a notable shift that you and Matthew both um, note in the post Pratt era at Carlisle um, in regards to ideas about both civilization, and manhood. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell the readers more about this shift as well as its impact on football at Carlisle.
1: Yeah. So um, after Pratt leaves the school, one of the things that is uh, important to think about is the vision of the school, because um, he leaves in 1904 um, and he's sort of forced out because he calls for the abolition of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, his boss. And um, he does that because they've abandoned the model that he had been advocating of, of assimilation. You know, he he always held that indigenous Americans could be elevated up to the highest levels of civilization. But there was much more of a kind of explicitly racist um, policy that came into effect under Teddy Roosevelt and um, his uh, secretary of interior, Estelle Real, um, or Bureau of Indian Affairs secretary. And Um, And, you know, there was just not a lot of willingness to put money and resources into these boarding schools. So they were really cutting back, and that's what got him angry, and he ends up leaving. Um, And uh, after he does that, then, kind of the vision of the school is pretty much gutted. Now, the person who took over for him, uh, General William Mercer, um, was um, a lot like Pratt. He had been a military officer, a Civil War veteran, and so forth. Um, so had a very militaristic, you know, the school was operated as a military school, really. And he um, continued in that fashion, but took away a lot of the academic programs that had been part of the school. Um, so, you know, students did get some education in things like literature and mathematics and and those sorts of things. And he he ended up taking that away. Um And with the vision gutted, really one of the only ways that the school's remaining in the public eye and remaining relevant then, so if nobody really believes in what the school is about, how does the institution stay open? And really by winning football games, that's one of the ways that they're able to do that. Um, Now, interestingly, Pratt on the way out um, uh, ends up um, having uh, a couple of different uh, students, former students, work as the coaches of the team. So... After um, Pratt, lead, Pratt well, you know, as Pratt is leaving, um, War, uh, Warner has also left and he hires Ed Rogers, um, who was an Ojibwe to um, coach. And he actually did a pretty good job in that 1905 season. He coached him to a nine and five record um, after him. You also had Frank Hudson um, and uh, Bemis Pierce. So these are all people that were um, working as coaches um, until 1907 when Warner ends up getting hired back as the coach. And um, uh, with Warner getting hired back as the coach, it's really, they kind of give him free reign. You know, as I said, there's not really much of a um, reason for the school to exist. And um, in that kind of atmosphere, in terms of the institution, any kind of publicity that they get, is good publicity. They're winning these football games. They don't really care what he does to win the football games. And we start to see these kind of rules that Pratt had set up go off the rails. I mean, um, Warner um, becomes um, uh, kind of, um, the, the analogy I would give is almost like if you think back to the Penn State scandal a few years ago, and we all learned how much power um, that Joe Paterno had at Penn State it's a very similar kind of thing where he kind of operates as a lone wolf in um, at the school so for a, just to give you an example um, he ended up scheduling a lot of games against um, the you know best team – Teams in the country, and uh, Carlisle would get a pretty good gate from those. So you know, when you look at their ledgers, they would get maybe five thousand dollars or seven thousand dollars from a game against Wisconsin or a game against Harvard or, or something like that. Often beating those teams, and they would they would do really well against those teams, and um, that was quite a bit of money at the time. Um, so uh, that would a lot of that money would go into a what what Warner called a booster fund, and Nobody to this day really knows how much money ended up in the booster fund. Um, That was all entirely under the control of Warner, Um, and he paid himself from that money. Uh, He used that money to pay players um, for different things that they did on the football field. The rules of amateur athletics in college football were uh, much looser then, so it was frowned upon and he did it secretly, but um, it wasn't necessarily a disqualifying factor for a team. Um, so he would pay players, he gambled on games. Um, he, uh, and a future superintendent for the school named, um, Moses Friedman, um, uh, had all sorts of schemes worked out where they would double bill the government, um, for, uh, travel to games. Um, so, uh, he had a lot of scams that were going on. He was also, um, offensive with the players. He would insult them in ways that they, um, uh, found very demeaning and hurtful. Um, he beat them. Uh, he, you know, one of the big uh, no-nos on campus was to drink on campus. Um, he regularly drank on campus. Um, and uh, uh, and that just gives you a sample of some of the things that he did. So, um, so you know, um, once, you know, Pratt leaves that, I guess, without that overall vision that we're talking about, which is a problematic vision, I don't want to um highlight that as like the good old days or anything but um without that um there um one of the things that happens with the players winning so much is uh there's almost no way they can win because if they're they're um uh you know before they had to you know basically make sure that they were so polite that they couldn't really win games and then now they're winning games and then they get talked about as being you know sort of physical creatures and um uh, you know, of course, they're winning games because um, they have that they are more masculine than everybody else. So it kind of affirms this um, uh, ideology that uh, indigenous Americans who are not white are, um, you know, somehow racially uh, different and given an advantage because of that.
0: Yeah. And and I, I'm glad that point where you left off on it, it segues really well into the to the next um figure we're going to talk about perhaps, or I would say, uh, Carlisle's uh, most famous alumnus, uh, Jim Thorpe, who many listeners may know from his um, excellent showing at the 1912 Olympics. But before and during and after that, um, he was a remarkable athlete at Carlisle. Um, And I was hoping you can tell the readers about Thorpe's impact on Carlisle football, as well as how the white press's portrayal of Thorpe, Demonstrated this conflicting ideas about manhood among the indigenous at Carlisle.
1: Yeah, so Thorpe was um, uh, a, uh, you know, sort of a touchstone player um, for Carlisle and touchstone athlete because he was not only a great football player, but a great um, all around athlete. And in fact, was voted eventually, I think, by ESPN viewers as the athlete of the 20th century best athlete of the 20th century um and uh you know the, his probably greatest accomplishment was winning the gold medal in 1912 at the stockholm olympics in the decathlon and the pentathlon which is five events and he did all of that in the span of about a week so he competed in all of those events um Uh, simultaneously and still won the gold medal in both of them. So it's really a remarkable achievement. He was a great um, baseball player, actually. Um, And uh, his family actually believes that uh, if he weren't kind of brought into the major leagues so early and not trained in the minor leagues, he would have been probably a better baseball player than any of the other sports. And he was a great football player, Um, leading the Carlisle team to uh, really tremendous records in 1910 and 1912. 1912 team in particular, that was right after the Stockholm Olympics. And that year they went, um, I think, 10 1 1, only losing to Penn at the end of the season in the last game. Um, so, uh, um, and he, he also, people don't know this, Jim Thorpe was the first president of the NFL, um, which is kind of an interesting piece of trivia. So, uh, so and he played in the NFL for the Canton Bulldogs and so forth. A great book um, was written about Jim's biography by uh, um, Dave Mar- Marinus um, that just came out last year. So uh, it's called uh, Path Led by Lightning, and I really would recommend it. Uh, he did a really nice job of um, kind of going through Thorpe's career and uh, Carl. Although he does describe the Carlisle Indian School as being on a hill outside of Carlisle. And those of us who live in Carlisle are still looking for that hill. So I, I'm not quite sure where that is. But other than that, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good book. Um, uh, and, you know, one of the things that happens with Jim Thorpe, which is a little, a little bit of um, answers, you know, your question, thinking about these issues of masculinity and manhood and so forth, is that, um, you know, Jim Thorpe was very much celebrated um, both at Carlisle and around the country, especially for his Olympic exploits. Um, But after the Olympics, um, somebody um, found out that he had been playing um, minor league baseball um, in North Carolina and been professionally and had been paid for that. And at the time, Olympic rules were really strict about amateurism, in part to kind of keep, um, uh, you know, Olympic athletics confined to a very elite group of people who could afford to, you know, dedicate an amateur vocation to athletics. Um, But uh, so Thorpe had been a a professional athlete, even though it was in a sport that was not track and field. And um, he, uh, he was uh, sort of discovered by this journalist in North Carolina. And after that came out, um, uh, he was stripped eventually of his medals by the, um, International Olympic Committee and by the U.S. Olympic Committee. Um, and, you know, Warner essentially had him write a letter, a kind of mea culpa. And he says in a, a very patronizing kind of line, it says, I um, don't, don't know of such things as professionalism. I'm just an ignorant schoolboy, in and Car- Indian schoolboy at Carlisle. Um, and it's almost certain that that Warner wrote that. What's probably um, and so, you know, what you kind of get the sense of there is that, um, you know, in the public eye and, you know, for sports journalists and and, um, fans and people like that, uh, Thorpe is being portrayed as kind of a naive, at best, um, um, simpleton, right? You know, who didn't kind of understand the system and so forth and who's overly masculine you know he's got this it often it gets portrayed that he didn't even train for the olympics which is really not true at all um that he just went out and um competed um uh and and just his raw physical ability is what gained him um the medals um so obviously that's not true He, he trained tremendously worked very hard and that was true as a football player as well um but uh, so in any, in, in any case, um, uh, it is almost certain that Warner knew that Jim Thorpe was competing professionally in baseball um, before encouraging him to try out for the Olympics. Um, and uh, so it, it, it is really one of the darker aspects of Warner's career um, that he kind of, you know, encouraged and pushed Jim Thorpe to do this sort of for his own glory and then once it became revealed that Thorpe had been, you know, a professional athlete, totally threw him under the
0: bus. And that's uh, I, I I will note too. I believe, you know, much overdue, right? Jim Thorpe finally um, they, they kind of righted the wrong and, and gave him his gold medals back. You know, yeah. much after his his death. I think that was a year or two ago. Yeah, just um, just recently. Yeah, yeah. just recently. Um, yeah, a, a very unfortunate thing, and, and kind of thrown under the bus by by Warner as well. Um, yeah. But I do probably the source that I was the most fascinated by. I um, mean, it sounds like something that that you were able to look at quite late in the process um, were these 1914 congressional investigations. Yes. Um, and I was I was hoping you could tell the listeners more about the source that kind of serves as the foundation for that fourth chapter, the 1914 congressional investigation. And so maybe what was this event and what did it allow you and Matthew to demonstrate um, that you may have not otherwise been able to or would have been more of a challenge in the book?
1: Yeah, so uh, Matthew was the first one to really get that. And he he was able to um, uncover the transcript for that coming to um, Carlisle. Uh, to do research. And now that is all available online. So um, I I benefited from that, especially since I was doing uh, the writing of my portion of the book during uh, 2020, 2021, the middle of COVID. So um, uh, yeah, I benefited from the digitization, uh, definitely. So 1914, um, a group of students uh, wrote to um, Congress and complained that the school was being completely mismanaged. And really, in their initial complaint, they don't mention football. Um, They mention all sorts of other things at the school, Um, like, uh, you know, there is drinking taking place in school. Students are being allowed to um, have sex with one another, Um, which is not that shocking because by the early in the school, if you ever seen old pictures of Carlisle, the initial pictures, you'll see. You know, children that look like they're five, six, seven years old. And um, it's a horrifying picture of this group of children just brought to Carlisle in their military uniforms. And um, they're just so young and vulnerable. Um, and it's really heartbreaking. Um, later on, you'd still have a little bit of that. But really what you have more of are students that are um, kind of almost institutionalizing Carlisle way past an age when they, they should be. Um, so um, a lot of the play, people who played football for Carlisle are 24, 25, 26 years old. The fact that you have 24, 25, 26-year-old um, young people having sex with one another is not really that that surprising. Um, but um, there was a great deal of dis- dissatisfaction with uh, you know the level of discipline that was going on on campus and all these other sorts of things. And what the students did to protest was really remarkable. Um, Students often protested at Indian boarding schools. There are 25 off-reservation boarding schools around the country, um, and uh, they would do largely the same things at all these schools. The students would either run away, they might burn buildings down, they might do all sorts of different things when they got mad at their administration, um, almost like you know prison rebellions or something. Um, but at Carlisle, in this particular case, they rebelled in a really interesting way. They um, detailed all these. Um, you know, things that were um, improprieties on campus um, and claimed um, with pretty strong argument that the people running Carlisle Indian School were actually less civilized than the students that were going to Carlisle Indian School. Um, so kind of turning the whole mission of Pratt on its head and taking the mantle of civilization on uh, on their own. Um and then later on, athletes sign on and they have their own letter um, that they submit. Um, and that was new. I, I was able to get access to some of those documents that Matthew hadn't been able to. So, but Matthew did most of the legwork leg for this um, initially. So, uh, so that was, uh, that was really a, a sort of tremendous insight that you can get into you know, what was going on to school. So really the school started to fall apart from the inside. Um, and, you know, really this whole claiming of, you know, civil civilization was really at the center of the protest. Now, the reason why some of the students, um, signed on, especially the athletes signed on and especially the athletes who signed on and turned against Warner, because a lot of the athletes who, um, were protesting were saying that actually Warner is not a good, um, example of. Uh, of civilization. Gus Welsh was probably most explicit. He was just asked, um, do you think he's a good role model? And he just says, you know, just right out there, he says, no, he's not. You know, um, he's a good coach. He knows football tactics really well. But as a human being, he's really not uh, someone that we should follow. And um, uh, many of them were angered by, you know, what they saw Warner doing with Thorpe. Um, and uh, with, you know, sort of throwing Thorpe under the bus. So that ended up becoming a factor in that. Whether the other students were, though, is not as clear. Um, one of the things that is clear is that by taking on that mantle of civilization, the problem is that ideas of civilization in the United States at the time came along with a lot of, um, a lot of things that were very problematic. You know, so, for example, um, you know, white supremacy. You know, if you're claiming to be civilized, you're claiming to be white in in, you know, 1914. Um, And you see this reflected in the testimonies that they give. So um, when we talk about drinking or sex on campus, they often blame the African-American community that lived in Carlisle. And they said, you know, people from the black community were coming onto campus or, you know, people on campus were escaping and going. And that's where they would buy their liquor. Um, And that's not really completely supported um, by the evidence. Uh, They said the same thing about um, sexual relations among students. Um, And another thing that, you know, would go along with civilization at the time would be that, um, you know, you wouldn't really support women's rights very much. Um, And the superintendent at the time, Moses Freeman, his wife was um, a a, um, suffragist. And so they said, look, you've got this guy. He's such a uh, a weak leader because his wife completely overpowers him because he's this suffragist. And she goes, you know, dancing around on campus and does all these different, like, she's doing some kind of suggestive dancing, apparently. So they were criticizing her for that. You can kind of understand the students getting mad about that if their sexuality is being constrained so much, you know, seeing the superintendent doing that. But at the same time, it's showing a lot of the kind of, sexism that would have gone along with notions of civilization. And then the final thing is that an idea of civilization in 1914 would have not really condemned um, anti-Semitism very much. And a lot of what the students were saying is that their superintendent, Moses Friedman, he was a recent convert to Christianity, but he was Jewish and he was being identified as Jewish. He looks very Jewish, even in the pictures that you see. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that the students hurled at him were anti-Semitic epithets. And even before the Congressional Committee, when they mentioned this, the Congressional Committee, um, rather than being concerned about the anti-Semitism, is concerned that, uh, you know, Friedman was so weak as a leader. Um, So that was sort of their response to it. Um, So it shows that, you know, the kind of protests they chose to to do in in going to Congress and saying that the leadership of Carlisle was less civilized. Um, which is kind of, you know, you know the, the the fact that the school was becoming reliant on football so much, it seemed to support that idea that they were less civilized, right? Um, that the school is becoming corrupt. And there were a lot of abuses that were taking place, um, you know, within the football program. This is the time when the gambling gets revealed, when the pain of players get revealed and, uh, you know, players having uh, sexual relations, all that gets revealed. So, um, So, you know, uh, you know, that all seems to, um, you know, bring Carlisle down quite a bit. But it also comes along with a sort of price, which is what, you know, civilization, the notion of civilization represented uh, in 1914.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I found pretty remarkable, too. Obviously, there's there's a lot of problematic statements made that, that we would um, find quite shocking now, and like you said, that that a lot had to do with ideas about civilization and masculinity at the time. But you know, knowing um, early college football history like I do, I found it also pretty remarkable um, because students typically are oftentimes the most ardent proponents of big time football during this period. And then um, you have um, this not being the case at Carlisle. These students in the investigational hearings—they're active, actively um, criticizing the football program. So, yeah, I was wondering if you had any more thoughts about, you know, why was this atypical for Carlisle uh, at that the big-time football program would actually take kind of the backseat to their efforts to, um, I guess, dismiss what's happening at administration?
1: Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question. And I think that, you know, it shows the degree to which football represented You know, masculinity rather than manhood. Right. Um, uh, And, you know, I should say that the students that brought forth that initial complaint were a lot of them were in the YMCA and were in um, were upset that the YMCA director had been fired um, at the school and um, were probably among the more assimilated members of the school and uh, really bought into Pratt's initial vision much more than um, uh, other students. And if you look at, you know, the records, oftentimes students when they, this is what my first book was about, when they remember Indian boarding schools, even if they hated their experience there, often the most positive aspect of their experience was the fact that the sports teams were so good. Um, so that that wasn't necessarily something they always rejected, you know. Th- so what you're talking about with the you know defensive football teams and so forth, um, probably that was true to some degree among many students. So uh, the sentiment uh, you know against football isn't necessarily universally held, but um, it certainly is the case that football um, uh, represented um, you know a degree of masculinity. And um, and it was very easy. It was a very kind of um, tricky and um, dangerous um, thing for indigenous students at the school to be, you know, star football players. For them, it could lead them down to being stereotyped and and um, and pigeonholed as being these sort of, uh, uh, you know, overly masculine physical beings and impede the ability of them, if they wanted to, uh, to assimilate into mainstream American society. Um, and it's interesting because I think that the football players then, when they turn against Warner, they sort of are picking up on this whole theme and recognizing the degree to, War- to which Warner is not a very good role model um, and, uh, and expressing their dissatisfaction with him and, and particularly with his, um, his treatment of Jim Thorpe.
0: And, and I, um, it, is, it is amazing, and I think you did a, a, you and Matthew did a particularly excellent job at the inter- end of the introduction, um, noting that many of these conversations and um, situations throughout the book um, are very relatable to things that are still happening, especially in sports today. And I, I'll read just from page 12 because I thought it was very well said um, that you and Matthew's examination of manhood and football at Carlisle Uh, quote, unlocks the conflicting messages that accompanied the school's civilizing mission and provides a window into the connections between racial ideologies, American colonial power, gender, and sports that are still relevant to this day, end quote. Um, I was hoping that you could expand on this for our listeners. And and what parallels in modern sports do you see today that align with what um, you and Matthew observed when researching Carlisle uh, football in the late 19th, early 20th century? You know, one
1: of the things that's kind of interesting to to look at is, you know, today I think that if we think about, um, uh, well, first of all, you know, it's interesting that college football took a long time to integrate, as you know, you know, so there were very few African Americans playing in it, um, and um, and so that, and even though that's not indigenous Americans, African Americans, um, it it took them a long time. And I think that the history of football on college campuses and its relationship to this idea of um, promoting masculinity among white men, that uh, that is certainly a factor in, you know, impeding um, uh, African-Americans from participating in the game. Um, So um, today I think it's, you know, once again, interesting that, um, okay, you know, they're allowed to play in the game, but they're not allowed to take on the leadership role, oftentimes, as coaches. Um, so if and in our conclusion, we point out um, the really wildly disproportionate um, number of African-American players in, in big-time college football as compared to coaches. I don't even know off the top of my head how many African-American coaches there are right now among um, bowl championship um, division teams or series teams in... Um, in college football, but very, very few. Uh, do you do you know that or? Yeah,
0: I, the, the, the one fact that stands out on the top of my head is I know it took until 1998. I built, I believe, with Sylvester Crew at Mississippi State for the SEC to even have an African American head coach. It took that long for it even to happen. And yeah, they. I mean, if you just think about it, they're few and far between. Certainly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And we still get representations of you know, manhood and manliness um, in relation to African-Americans. I I think the one I mentioned in the conclusion of our book um, most prominently is the movie The Blind Side, if you've Mm -hmm. ever seen that, um, where you have um, Michael Orr and his um, portrayal of, you know, being rescued by this white family and football sort of rescuing him and and in a way civilizing him. Um, But he's portrayed very much as a Physical being. Um, His success in football is portrayed as being really the result of his uh, physical abilities um, uh, tempered and sort of um, honed by his white family that adopts him and his white coach. And the stories, of course, they don't tell is that the school that he goes to um, is a former what they call segregation academy in the South. So it's a private school that was set up so that um, when schools were integrated, white students weren't didn't have to go to school with black students. Um, and that's a school that he ended up playing for and, and getting adopted into. <clears throat> so, you know, literally one of the reasons why the public school he went to was so bad is because the segregation academies, you know, siphoned off uh, the students from there. And, and there wasn't a commitment to have good integrated schools in places like Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and the coach who's, you know, considered, shown to be somewhat of a moral leader ended up, I believe, getting fired from the university of Mississippi for making, yeah. um, calls to escort services on university phones. So, um, so we don't get that side of the story. No, no, he actually, I believe warm, he but. just,
0: he just ended up, he, and even after he was punished for a very short time period, I believe he's back coaching a head coach in the SEC. Is so he okay? So, yeah, this year he just, I think, I think it was Auburn. Um, so it shows that even his punishment was very short <laughs> and sweet, and then
1: they let him right back in. Right, right. So, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it, it, a lot of the, um, you know, the relationship, the ideas of, of coaches and, and, and um, uh, the, uh, the understandings of race and football, I think really you see a preview of what we see today, um, you know, in this Carlisle example back in the early 20th century.
0: Yeah. And, and, I also appreciated Um, you mentioned at the very in, beginning of the, of the interview that, um, the, the branch Ricky Jackie Robinson, um, you know, turned the other cheek was exactly what Pratt was saying to the students, um, which, you know, immediately I was like, you're absolutely correct. That's kind of like Pratt was the, the branch Ricky of his time in a way. Um, you know, 50, like,
1: over 50 years earlier. Yeah. yeah.
0: So no, it was remarkable and all the, all the kind of connections that were made. Um, well, John, we've taken up a lot of your time, and, and, but before we go, I, I was hoping you could tell us about any projects that you're currently working on or projects you're looking forward to, to working on in the future.
1: Um, actually, I'm, I'm going in a completely different direction in the work I'm doing right now, which is on uh, – I know you live in Washington, D.C. A long time ago, I was a bike messenger in Washington, D.C. So I've been trying to get um, some stuff written about uh, the history of bike messengers in Washington, which is completely different. But it's kind of a, a interesting kind of intersection of sports and, and labor and uh, and lifestyle uh, as well. So a lot of kind of interesting stuff there. Yeah. So, um, I've been well, very, enjoying very that. Very
0: topical, because as, as a new resident of Washington, D.C., I can say that uh, there's bikes everywhere now. Um, so anything related to – and I know that wasn't always the case, but certainly is now. Yeah, no, but D.C. is a great bike city, mm-hmm. so a lot of bike paths. Yeah, I, I rode
1: but my bike to work
0: yesterday. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. <laughs> well, John, I appreciate it. Again, thoroughly enjoyed the book. The prize was well-deserved. You, and Matthew, um, have a finely researched book finally written book. And I do encourage everyone out there listening, um, you know, hey, college football season's right around the corner. Uh, This is a good one if you want to get into the college football spirit, but also learn um, some things about um, the challenges that Indigenous Americans faced, um, the kind of root of popcorn or football, if you will, um, early football, but also a slightly different story than you might be used to hearing, even if you think you know about early football. So um, it really is a book that everyone can enjoy. Very, very fun read. Um, so highly encourage everyone to get out there and read
1: it. And thank you, John, for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it.